uh, David slew Goliath. And so Jonathan took to him immediately, and they took to one another. And so this relationship was formed, and it had a lot of adversity in it because of Saul, who was Jonathan's father. But uh, it definitely grew, and it was something that was important to David, and something that was really important important to Jonathan also. So, what we have here is a a funeral song. Basically, is what we're in the middle of here. We're taking this verse, and it was the funeral song that David had for Jonathan and for his father Saul. And it's kind of interesting if you read it. And you read what he says about Saul, he really doesn't go into, he doesn't overstate Saul. And, and I think that's really important that he, he was willing to mourn for Saul, but he wasn't going to say things about Saul that weren't true. And he didn't. Uh, and the things that he did say about Saul, we could reasonably assume that he really believed that about him. And that was what he put into the song, and that's how he mourned, was in truth. And so... I wanted to say that and I wanted to point that out because we've been talking about that quite a bit lately is this idea of truth, this idea of living in the truth, this idea of allowing the truth to dwell in us and of finding really the comfort and the reality and the stability that the truth brings into our lives. I think sometimes we fear the truth but the truth is what sets us free. I think sometimes we avoid the truth, but it's the truth that really does that work in us of healing and deliverance and all the rest of the things we're really seeking God for. Uh, and so it's important for us to uh, open ourselves up at least somewhat and, and allow God to teach us what it means to embrace His truth, what it means to take hold of His truth, what it means to live in relationship with his truth. Jesus declared himself the truth. And so we're inviting Jesus in. We're inviting him into our lives. We're inviting him into our heart. But he is the truth. So in order to receive him fully, we need to be able to receive from God what he speaks. We need to receive from God what he says. And we need to be able to live within that. You know, and so in this particular case, and, and it just seems like we just went through a, a period in the United States, uh, where we, the, um, I don't know if you remember when Kobe Bryant got killed, and, I, and I'm not, I have nothing against that or anything else, but we went through a, a period of time where, like, the whole country just seemed to shut down uh, because a basketball player died in a helicopter accident, and his family, and, and I mean, seriously, his daughter dying and the people that died in that accident was a tragic thing. There, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but what was interesting about it was that the next day, that was on a Sunday, on Monday, I turned on the, you know, I was, I was at the gym and the TV is inside the bicycle somehow. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but it's in there. And so I'm, I'm riding the bike and so I put it on a sports channel and it was just wall-to-wall Kobe coverage. Like, all right, so then I flipped to another sports channel. You know what was on there? Wall-to-wall Kobe coverage. And then I said, all right, I know what I'll do, because this was still when uh, football was still going on. I'll turn to the NFL channel, and so at least I can catch a little sports. So I hit, hit the NFL channel. 
NFL, it was all wall-to-wall Kobe. Kobe was a basketball player, right? He was a basketball player. Yeah, it was, it was really weird. And, and I, I suppose I'm old enough that this isn't the first sports personality that I've ever uh, known to die. <laughs> So I, I don't. I, it didn't seem overly. I didn't know Kobe Bryant, so I, personally, so it didn't seem overly tragic to me. But uh, I guess what I'm getting at is this: that sometimes when people die, uh, we all have different reactions to that. We all handle it differently. We all uh, do things, and and I mean, this coverage went on for like a week afterwards. And and I'm sorry to say, and if I get hate mail for this, I do. It seemed a bit overblown. Well, it seemed a lot overblown. And and I, I just couldn't understand, and I still don't understand why. I don't. But, you know, I was hearing things about, you know, different phrases were being thrown out about Kobe. It's like, he's the greatest of all time, basketball player. And... That's just not true. <laughs> it's not. And I know I know you could say, oh, uh, you must hate Kobe. No, I don't hate Kobe. I just don't believe he's the greatest basketball player to ever play the game. I don't. And there were other things that were said about him during the mourning process that it reminded me that a lot of times like, if people die, especially famous people, you know, sometimes when people are mourning or they're, eulogizing or they're speaking of the person, they may overstate things about that person. Okay. And I guess what I'm just pointing out here is that David wasn't doing that. I mean, Saul was the king. He was the first king ever of Israel. David had served in his court. In fact, David was Saul's son-in-law. He was married into the family. Saul's daughter was his wife. And so it wasn't like he was detached from the family. Even though Saul was hunting him down, trying to kill him, he was still part of it. And so when Saul passed away, I suppose David could have, you know, really given him some real praise or whatever, but I found it interesting that he, he just told the truth or what he believed about him. And that's fine. And that was good enough. You know, it's been my privilege to, we've had a, you know, a bunch of funerals here. And, and I say privilege because I consider it a privilege to, to be asked to honor someone's life when they die. And I consider it a privilege as a church that we have that opportunity with people to, to honor and to celebrate people's lives. Uh, and maybe just over the years it's just come to me that and and I'm accepted the fact that everybody dies we're all going to die unless Jesus comes back you, know, you like the way I threw that you got to tag that in any Christian discussion right so I'm tagging it in unless Jesus comes back we're all going to die it's a natural course of our lives and because it's the natural course of our lives, we've made provision as a people to celebrate the, life, the lives of people that we love and the people that are around us. And so we've had that privilege here. Uh, when we were just really, really young as a, as a group of Christians together, our, our main leader, I mean the, the 
person that worked with me the closest that was one of our main disciples in our group died. And, and, and that was something that was just really weird. I mean, she was in her mid-twenties and she died. Uh, we had, we were all really young. We had a bunch of young students. We had, I mean, at the core of our church was just really, really young. I mean, our elders were in their twenties. Even if, I don't even know if we had, I don't think we had elders yet. But, but, I mean, we were all young. And, and I can remember the, just having that time where, I mean, we just sat around and, and we just all hung out together for days on end because we were mourning the loss of this person. And privately, I remember thinking to myself, it's like, all right, well, I depend on this person for X, Y, and Z. And it was just kind of overwhelming to, to have something like that happen right in, at the start of something we're trying to do. And, and but we, we gathered together, we banded together, people stepped up, people made decisions, people uh, moved in faith and, and started up new things. And we got together and we celebrated her life, we celebrated her ministry, and we continued on in what God had called us to do and the vision that He gave us. And in some weird way, it made us all stronger because we were able to do that. We've had plenty of memorial services here in this building. And one of the things that I try not to do is overstate things with people about people. I think the truth is good enough. You know? And, and people laugh, but there was this one uh, time we were asked to host a, uh, a memorial service for somebody who didn't come to the church. Uh, it was someone that was uh, the ex-husband of one of the people that showed up to church sometimes, but we hadn't seen her for about a year type situation. They contacted me because she didn't have anywhere else or anybody else to ask, but wanted to have some kind of memorial service and said, hey, um, would you guys host a memorial service for my uh, ex-husband? I'm like, well, can you tell me a little bit about him? Okay, well, um, he is homeless. He lived over off of, uh, over by Armory Square, under where those bridges are, where the creek goes through, and there's like, a, um, and it's just big, and people live under the bridge over there. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And so they lived down there, and he was part of that community that lived under the bridge, and uh, something had happened to him. He died. And I can't remember all the details, but then uh, that was it. So she was asking if we could do this. So, all right. And then I got a few more details of his life. And so I sat down before we were supposed to, to do the service. And uh, I thought, all right, how do I do this? <laughs> I mean, I don't know this guy. And, and and here's my fragmented information about him. So I just put together all the information and I came up with something to say about him and there we went. And it was awesome. Well, it was awesome because there was nothing to make up because I didn't know the guy, right? So I just I just based it on everything that I was told 
And then um, we had a little uh, food afterwards. Uh, one of the <laughs> people that came to the church was a, had a catering experience, and so uh, we served up some, I believe we had some uh, beans and franks uh, for the uh, after-service meal. It was just awesome. So anyway, there was a funeral director guy there that we had been working with, and he, he came up to me afterwards. He was like, He's like, that was unbelievable. He's like, I go to I go to funeral services for a living. He's like, that's one of the best services I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Plus the beans and franks at the end. I mean, jackpot. I mean, it was just, it was perfect. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like because. For example, just a quick example, you know, we're giving the eulogy of like, you know, this guy, he was a lover of nature. He spent most of his time outside. Um, <laughs> I mean, so, so anyway, what we, what we, you know, what we learned over the years is like it's just best to be truthful about it. I mean, you can celebrate someone's life and still be truthful. Um, you can celebrate someone's life without exaggerating. You can celebrate someone's life and and remember them. And and I mean, David's not pointing out all the bad stuff about Saul, but he's not exaggerating the good stuff either. He's just saying this is who he is. And let's celebrate this life. Now then, you had Jonathan. Who, uh, who David called his brother, his brother. And, and I thought that was interesting because, I mean, he, he means it by friendship is what he means it. I mean, you could say, well, he was his brother because they're from the same nation. They are. I mean, they're both from you know, the same nation or the same religion. You know, people in the same religion might call each other brother. You ever hear that? Yeah, you know, that's right. Yeah, Sister Kim. Yeah, that's right. You know, some people call each other brother, sister, Protestant religion. And, or he could have, you know, you could think, all right, well, maybe he called him brother well, because it was his brother-in-law because David was married to Jonathan's sister. But I don't think he meant any of those things by it. I think that he meant that this was my, my friend. That's why he called him brother. He had a relationship with him. He had a... A bond with him. It was true friendship that was founded on a sincere love. And true friendship that's founded on a sincere love is really rare and difficult to find. So, David's mournful, he's distressed, his friend is dead. And he considered his relationship with Jonathan to be very special. And it says that in the passage. It says that his relationship with Jonathan was very special, very special. And, and so he was showing his appreciation for the friendship of Jonathan, even though there were stressed circumstances. You think about the nature of their friendship. I mean, Jonathan's father was trying to kill David. Jonathan's father was jealous of David. Jonathan's father was out to get him. Jonathan's father would, would say certain things to him, lie to him, 
and then try to catch him unaware, uh, hoping that he believes his lie. And, and so I want you to think that in those circumstances, even in those adverse circumstances, that Jonathan, who was loyal to his father, he was, but he was best friends with David. And they remained best friends no matter what was going on with Jonathan's father. That there's something about that. There's something that is powerful about that kind of a relationship. And, and David was really appreciative toward Jonathan because of it and because of the circumstances from which it was born and which it grew. Those are powerful things. You think about friendships that are formed in, under adversity. I immediately think of, what do you think of if I say that? People who become friends under adverse circumstances, what would be the first thing you would think of? Well, I was in the military. Yeah. All right, so you think, about, you think about war, and you think about guys who are bonded together through their experiences together in war. Those are adverse, stressful circumstances that guys learn to not only trust one another, but to depend on one another, and your lives are sometimes in each other's hands. And so there's something that happens there, and there's something, there's some kind of a bond that's formed there. Uh, I just I don't know how long ago it was. We're watching a documentary or watching a movie. Um, it might have, I can't remember what it was. We were watching something. And it was on World War II, and these guys that whose lives had been shared in these super adverse circumstances. And how even to this day, they, they remain friends. Even if their lives diverged afterwards, even if they went their way, or this guy lived in that part of the country, or that guy lived in that part of the country, there's still a bond that exists between them. And, and so it's forged in that, and it's made in that, and there's something really powerful about it. And David and Jonathan were very similar to that because of the circumstances by which they, they formed and, and the relationship was forged. I mean, Jonathan, in a real way, I mean, he, he, he depended on David, but David also depended on Jonathan. And either one of them could have betrayed the other at any point, and yet they didn't. Because that wasn't what they were doing. That wasn't what their lives were about. They had to learn to trust one another and they had to learn to depend on one another because of the situations they were in. And so there's a friendship that's formed and is hardened in those kind of circumstances. Now, relationships that are formed in Christ, He produces the strongest friendships for whatever reason. And, and it, whether or not it has to do with this particular aspect of friendship or what it has to do with, I'm not sure, but there's a bond that is formed when a relationship is formed within relationship with Him. Those of you that have ever read The Cost of Discipleship or been a part of the internship and read the book, there's a part of that book that talks about relationships. And it talks about how relationships are formed and the possibilities that are formed in those kind of relationships. And in that chapter, Bonhoeffer talks about how we are incapable, 
in many ways we're incapable of forming direct relationships with people. But we need what he calls mediated relationships through Christ. That when we become a Christian, when we come into that place with Him, then whatever relationships that we're really going to form, that are going to last, they're going to be formed through Him. And He'll mediate those relationships for us. And part of that makes sense to me because when you form a relationship, say one believer forms a relationship with another believer, one Christian forms a relationship with another Christian, The fact of the matter is, is that that relationship is eternal. That our relationships, one with another, are eternal. And I know we celebrate when, say, two people get married and they're they're married for uh, how many years? When do we start celebrating? Two? I know. Uh, When do we we start celebrating? Okay, one year. Okay, we did it. Well, you think about it. It's like, okay, maybe 10 years at this, in this day and age. If you make it 10 years with somebody, uh, we're doing pretty good, right? Let's say you make it for 20 years. Bigger deal. 25 years, that's the silver. silver. Right. And so that's getting rare now. All right? 25 years that people could stand each other. Right? Enough to stay married. 25 years. And then what's the next big one? 50. They figure if you made it 25, well, you've got to make it for 50, right? So you get to the 50th, and that's gold, and then there used to be 75. It used to be 75, and that would be diamond, but they changed that to 60 years now. Oh, really? Yeah. Yep. So uh, there you go. Because people get married later, and people weren't making 75. <laughs> That wasn't happening. So, it just had to do with mortality rates, I think. I don't think it really had anything to do and, and the age people get married at these days. So, so we celebrate that, and it's like, wow, somebody makes it 50 years. I can remember my grandparents, we celebrated their golden anniversary. Yeah, we, me and June drove down to South Carolina, and we celebrated that with the whole family. I mean, 50 years. Well, right. But we're going to know each other for the next million years. All right? We're going to be in relationship with one another for a lot more than 10 years or 20 years or 25 or 50 or 75 years. That these bonds that have been formed through Christ are so strong. These bonds are so strong that they last Forever. Forever. And I want to put that in perspective because we're going to come back to this perspective toward the end. Because he comes back to the perspective in his song. But understand that their relationship was formed. Their bond was formed. But it was going to last a lot longer than anything we could make ourselves. So, their love for each other was described as wonderful. Wonderful. Now, I want to say this, because we have such a lack of depth 
in our relationships. I just want to say this right now. We have such a lack of depth in our relationships. It is so foreign to us that people that read this passage of Scripture these days, and this assumption was never made ever before, in the 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years that people have read this, the assumption is now made, well, they must have been gay. Yeah, that's the assumption that's made now. Because nobody, or at least few people, can conceive of this kind of a relationship, this kind of a friendship. Because they never experience it themselves. That they were friends. And the other side of that is that what happens is is that we somehow, some way, we, we've lost this depth of relationship within friendship, but we've also redefined what the deepest relationships we can possibly have are. We redefine that. So, given those two circumstances, other assumptions have been made, which I think are wrong. I think they're incorrect. And I could sit here and explain to you why I think they're incorrect, but I'm just going to say I believe they're incorrect. Because I believe that what we see here between Jonathan and David is the highest form of human relationship that is possible. That's what I believe. They were friends. And I don't know of any higher form of relationship than that. And you guys know I'm married. You guys know I have kids. And I know that goes against the norms of our society. And all I want you to consider when I say that, the norms of society, is that relationships in our society are horrible and are falling apart. And so whatever their norms are, are probably wrong because they don't work. And that's all I want you to consider about that. Look at the evidence. Look at what's happening. And then from there, I just want you to say, all right, well, maybe the norms or what I've been taught are the norms of how people are supposed to live or how people are supposed to relate to each other. Maybe they're just wrong. Maybe they're just incorrect. Maybe, as per the evidence around me, I should not listen to that anymore. Maybe. I can't tell you what to do, but, man, I don't know how bad things possibly get where you start to reject it. All right? I have no idea. I don't know how bad things have to get before you start looking for truth somewhere else than in the norms of society. The things have gotten pretty bad. Things have gotten pretty messed up. For you to cling to that, does that make any sense? I know you're pre-programmed to, and I know you got pressure to, but does it make any sense? So I'm asking. 
You are a thinking adult. Does it make any sense? And I'll leave it there. So back to the wonderful love. There's a wonderful love being shared between Jonathan and David. That's part of his song. And what that describes is a strong expression is what that describes. He compares... This is how strong the expression is. Understand this. He compares Jonathan's love for David to that of a faithful wife to her husband or children. That's the word used there. He compares Jonathan's love for David, his friend, to that of a faithful wife to her husband or her children. Is that not weird in our way of thinking? Is it? You tell me. In your way of thinking, the way that you've been brought up and what you've been taught your whole life, is that not weird? Okay, yes, it's weird. <laughs> All right, because you're not taught to think that way. You're not taught to believe that. You're taught to believe something else that's not working clearly. I mean, when Jesus said, He said, greater love has no man than this. What? What did He say? For who? For His friends. For His friend. Greater love has no man than this that He laid down His life for His friends. He didn't say greater love has no man than this than a mother has for her child. He didn't say that. He didn't say greater love is no man this than a mother has for uh, a wife has for her husband. He didn't say either one of those things. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm not making this up. This is what he said. And so if he said that and he is pointing something out, he is illustrating something for us. He's backing up and he is speaking truth to what we're reading here in Second Samuel. Understand that. Understand it. And He showed us the greatest love because He laid down His life for His friends. That's our example. He was never married and He never had kids. But He showed us the greatest love. How is that possible? If you're right. Follow me? If society is right, how could Jesus show us the greatest love? How? He couldn't. Because I'm telling you, we got something messed up. And I'm not and I'm not downplaying the love of a wife for a husband or a husband for a wife. A love of a mom for a kid. I'm not downplaying any of that. I'm not. That's super important. And, and it's a part of, of how we're made. And it's a part of our, our DNA. And it's a part of who we are as human beings. That we experience those forms of love. And that's all good. But it doesn't mean it's the greatest. And it doesn't mean there's nothing that is greater than that. Because there is. There is. And so this strong expression, 
This strong expression comparing Jonathan's love for David is that of a faithful wife to her husband or her children begins to illustrate for us what friendship is in reality. Because that's what it is. And so a, a better definition of friendship may need to happen in us. It may. That we may need to start looking at what it means to really be somebody's friend and really live as somebody's friend. And we, we look at verses in the Bible, they talk about preferring others over ourselves. We look at verses in the Bible and they, they talk about our neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. We look at verses in the Bible and, and they talk about there's all these different expressions of what love looks like in and through our lives. And in most of those expressions of love that were taught through the teachings of Jesus, that were taught through the epistles, extend far beyond just a nuclear family. And so, if all we're going to do is huddle into our nuclear family, and that's going to be the end all of our expression of love, that's going to be the end all of our expression of care, that's going to be the end all of our expression of what it means to serve one another and love one another, then we've missed it. We've missed it. We missed the gospel. We missed the epistles. We missed the teachings that we're supposed to get. We missed it. And I tell you, my, my whole life in ministry. And this is not a pity party. I'm just letting you know I have gotten nothing but flack about how I live my life. Nothing but flack. Nothing but people feeling sorry for me. Nothing but people, you know, upset because, you know, this, that, or the other thing. You know, why are all those people at your house every weekend? Why are those people around? All this other stuff. It's like I've got nothing, nothing but people judging me over that stuff. And I'm, I'm just going to tell you something. I, it's because I believe something differently than they do. I just do. Because whatever it is that, that is driving our society right now, it's not working. And it's time for some new, possibly some really old ideas to begin to resurface and begin to redictate how we, as God's people, are going to choose to live our lives. And I think it's time. And so he makes this comparison. If you read there, he makes the comparison of Jonathan's love for David and that of a faithful wife to her husband or children. And and so David says this in his song. Here's what he says. Our love, your love for me, was more wonderful than the love of women. Now, I think it's interesting that he uses the plural, but then again, David has two wives at this time. <laughs> so it is literally women. And it might, he might have just said, my wives. Now, you can say that that's a bust on his wives, but I don't believe that to be the case. I don't believe that. 
I don't believe it was a bust on his wives. I believe that what he is saying is that this comparison, well, there's not really a comparison. Because the love that Jonathan had for him, the love that they shared with each other in their friendship, was greater and more wonderful than that of the love of women toward him. Now, it's been called a bunch of things as I... I've read through some of the commentaries on it, but I think one of the best descriptors that I read about it is that it's called a pure friendship. What does it mean to be pure? One thing. thing. Yeah, one thing. It's one thing. David, Jonathan, one thing, that's it. They're friends and that's it. There's nothing else to it. David had nothing to gain from it. Jonathan had nothing to gain from it. At least they weren't taking advantage of it. That was it. They're just friends. It was, they were just friends. And like I said, it began after Goliath. You know, Jonathan was just super excited that David went out and he killed a giant with a slingshot and then took the giant's sword and cut his head off. I'm sure Jonathan looked at that and said, I want to know that guy. And he did. And so he went up to David and, and Jonathan willingly, after, after Goliath was dead, I mean... Jonathan gave him his, uh, his, his armor and gave him his clothes and his cloak and his robe and, and all the rest of those things. I mean, he was a prince. Jonathan was next in line for the throne. And he was a prince, and, but, he was, but he didn't see David as a rival. <clears throat> Somehow they were on the same team. You see that? They're on the same team. And David proved they were on the same team. Why? Because Saul sat there looking at that, that giant day after day and wouldn't go out and fight him. Jonathan sat there looking at that giant day after day and wouldn't go out and fight him. The whole army of Israel sat there looking at that giant day after day and none of them would go out and fight him. And you got this kid, he shows up and he's like, I'll go fight him. And he goes out, he fights him, he kills him, and Israel wins, wins the day. Not only wins the day, wins the war. And Jonathan had enough sense to look at David and say, you know what? We're all on the same team. And I want to know this guy. And he went out of his way to get to know him. He went out of his way to spend time with him. He went out of his way to lavish on him what he had. And so David and Jonathan formed a friendship but you have to look at Jonathan not seeing David as a rival, as being an important part of that. There was no mixed message. There was nothing to be gained, nothing to be lost. They were just going to be friends, and that was it. That was it. So that's what they did. He took David into his heart. And David took Jonathan into his heart. And they shared their lives together. And I think it's important, I mentioned this before, that Jonathan was not affected by his father's hatred of David. He was not affected by it. Why? Why do you think? Why was he not affected by his father's hatred of David? Absolutely. Absolutely. There was, and and I want to and I want to take that as deep as you can possibly take it. He had his own relationship with him, meaning 
that his relationship with him stood on its own. That it had nothing to do with his father. It had nothing to do with, with any other outside force other than it's just him and David and they were together. That was it. And so, based on that, his father's hatred didn't affect that. It was a pure friendship. It was just one thing. If he'd allowed his father into it, how many things would that be? At least two. It wasn't. No, it was just one thing. Could be. That's a lot of... Or if David's relationship with Jonathan had to do with Jonathan's sister, what if she was in on it? But she wasn't. Because it was only one thing. It was one thing. It was David and Jonathan. That was it. One thing between the two of them. One friendship. And so, Jonathan's sister didn't affect it. Jonathan's father didn't affect it. David's wife, who was Jonathan's sister, didn't affect it. I mean, none of these things affected it. You think David's mighty men may have wondered why their leader was consorting with the son of the king? Maybe more than once? Like, you think about that. You're like one of the mighty men and your life depends on this. And you see David going off to talk to Jonathan and spend time with him. Well, Jonathan is the son of their mortal enemy. The man who was hunting them across the countryside, forcing them to live in caves and would kill every single one of them if he had the chance. But you got David going off to hang out with Jonathan. You might, they might wonder about that, right? Would that make sense for them to wonder about that to you? Sure. But they didn't have anything to do with it. They didn't have anything to do with it. This was between Jonathan and David. Right? Right. And so, I want you to really somehow grasp what that means. I just want you to grasp it. Because Saul hated David. Saul was hell-bent to, to kill David, to hunt him down and kill him like a dog. And yet Jonathan was able to remain friends with David, and he also served his father. Because those were two different things. He was loyal to his father, and friends with David. Powerful. Powerful. But that's the depths. That is the depths of what that means. I think of Jesus sometimes and how Jesus himself would, and, and specifically in John chapter 6, Jesus taught something about eating his flesh and drinking his blood that no one understood but him. Nobody understood that teaching except for Jesus. Now we have an understanding of it because we're reading it later. But they didn't know. And so he's talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. What do we call that? Cannibalism. cannibalism. So he's talking about cannibalism. 
And that's strictly forbidden in the law. And so he had all these followers, you know, thousands and thousands of followers are like, man, I don't know, I have any idea what this guy's talking about. Because it made no sense. And so they just left. I mean, the depth of their relationship was such that they just, they weren't going to stay for that because they had no understanding of it. And what it sounded like is that he was talking about cannibalism. And they could have nothing to do with that. And so they just took it at what was said and left. And all that was left over after they all left, thousands and thousands of people left, there was 12 disciples still standing there. And Jesus asked them an important question. He's like, well, are you going to leave too? And they gave the, the greatest answer in the history of, uh, of answers. We have nowhere else to go. <laughs> That's the greatest answer ever. Where are you going to go? The answer is nowhere. We don't have anywhere else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. But they didn't understand what he was talking about. They did not. And don't ever think that they understood what he was talking about because they did not. Did not. They couldn't understand simple things he was talking about. Much less when he starts using this kind of language when their, their ability to comprehend what he was saying was so limited that they would just take that at face value. And so to them he was talking about cannibalism. And so even though he was talking about cannibalism, there was a depth to their relationship that went beyond just what he was saying in a moment. Because they had heard him speak many times. They had heard him speak many, many times. And they'd never heard this before. They'd heard him talk about some of the same things over and over again. They'd heard him talk about the kingdom of God. They heard him talk about provision. They heard him talk about, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount had taken place. All these things had happened. And they'd heard all of these wonderful truths. And they'd seen him heal and raise the dead and do all these wonderful things. And so now he was saying something that made absolutely no sense to them. You're just going to run off when that happens? Is there enough depth to the relationship where you understand something? I got nowhere else to go. Nowhere else. And he explained it to them later, but did they get it? I have no idea. Did it matter? It mattered not. Because it didn't change anything. Because there was something more powerful going on in their relationship than whether or not they understood every word that came out of his mouth. Because they surely said some really stupid things over the time that he knew them. But he didn't go running off looking for anybody smarter. That's what happened. That's the truth, though. I mean, it's like, you know, where are you going to go? Nowhere. Where are you going to go? You don't go anywhere. Because they had a relationship. They had a relationship. And and I don't know, you, you, can, you can think what you want about this, but I am such a simpleton when it comes to relationships, I can't even explain it to you. And, and those of you that know me for a long time, is that it never occurs to me to run off. 
Does that make sense to anybody that knows me? It never occurs to me. And I am a simpleton just like that. And I have been my whole life. Because I don't know anything any differently. I've found over the years, however, that others disagree with my perspective on that. Which I know is a valid point. I know it is. It's just beyond my understanding. And so, I guess what I want to offer tonight is maybe a fresh look. And we'll start it with you and with me. Let's just start it with you and me. A fresh look at our depth and a fresh look at how we're going to view the opportunities for relationship around us. Because we have opportunities right here in this room for a depth of relationship and friendship that's going to last forever. We do. And a lot of that is going to fall on you and me. And and we're going to be willing to take the plunge or we're not. And you can stay as shallow as you want. Nobody, you know, nobody's going to tie an anchor around you and throw you in the deep end. That's on you. (laughs) That's on you. But the opportunities are here. And that's what I want to say. The opportunities abound. There's opportunity around you. And I'm not saying this is the only opportunity. There's opportunities all around the world for this. There's opportunities in this city beyond this place for this. There's opportunities in this state, in this nation, in the nations of our world for this. I mean, there's been people that I've met, uh, I was just thinking, uh, mainly because of Matthew, uh, that when Morgan was 10, we went to France. And we traveled into the south of France to meet uh, a woman that I barely knew. I mean, I'd known her. I shouldn't say I barely knew her. I knew her because she came to church here. But she's really good friends um, with Marie. And so Marie had helped me set it up so we could go down to where her friend was and and we could hang out with them for a few days in the south of France. And so we did. And we went down there and so we met her, her family, and then we went and stayed with a family in a small village at a church. It was a pastor of a church. And I spoke at the church and then we stayed with the family the next day and then uh, this woman came and picked us up and stuff, but it was such an awesome experience for Morgan that we were just part of this community, and it's a really small, it's a really small, spirit-filled Christian community in a really small village. But we had dinner, we hung out with people, we played games, uh, we went to a museum together. We all—I mean, it was just really—it was just such a great experience. But there were relationships that were formed there that went beyond the moment. And 
I'm just really thankful for those kind of opportunities. I'm really thankful for the opportunities we've had in Senegal and in Ghana, uh, opportunities we had in Algeria, with relationships in Tunisia, and some of these places where we've really just met people and, and roots were dropped in those places. Um, China, where roots have been dropped. I mean, to the point, I mean, I thought about Tunisia the other day, and I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but we'd been in Tunisia once, and then Lou decided he wanted to go visit Tunisia and spend a little time there, so we called our friends in Tunisia where we had dropped some roots, and they dropped everything to go pick him up at the airport, bring him on a train, and take care of him for the time he was there on our behalf because something real had been left and remained. And so, I want you to look at you. Let's look at me. Not me, you're me. <laughs> you're me. Heavenly Father, as, as we consider who we are, who I am, God, I pray that... Um, I pray that we'd see something bigger tonight and deeper. And I ask you that you'd teach us not to settle for what the world offers. Not to settle for what the world says is okay. And not to believe what the world says is safe and unsafe. But I pray, God, that we would begin to dare to live more fully and differently than most of the people around us. I ask you, God, that you'd teach us something new. You'd show us something new and then, God, we'd take a hold of it. Something so different, so radically different that our lives would be changed. And I mean that, changed. Thank you, Lord. Because I pray for more. I pray for more for us as individuals. More of a depth of relationship between us, a greater expectation of what life together really means. I just rebuke fear, a fear that tries to separate us. I rebuke it in the name of Jesus. pray you'd set us free, set our hearts free, fill us with your love, fill us with your love.
place for our hearts to be wide open. Ask it in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know. He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah.